Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On today's episode of the podcast, we're talking about militarization in Mexico. From ongoing debates about the role of Mexico's armed forces in the war on drugs to continued discussion of the government's role in a high-profile massacre of student protesters in 1968, the issue of militarization continues to be a highly relevant topic in modern Mexico. In Mexico today, the word militarization is often discussed alongside the word Ayotzinapa. In the fall of 2014, the fallout after the disappearance of 43 students from the Ayotzinapa Teachers College in the southwestern state of Guerrero quickly gathered steam and reporters from around the globe tuned in to follow the unfolding investigation. Mexico's current president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, was an inspiring presidential candidate in 2014, and he quickly seized on the Ayotzinapa incident as a rallying cry to help organize protests to turn public opinion against the centrist administration of then-president Enrique Peña Nieto. Speaking in October 2014, a few weeks after the students disappeared, Lopez Obrador publicly speculated on how much Peña Nieto and his advisors really knew about what happened to the students. I think they know what happened, he said. The Ayotzinapa incident fueled speculation about corrupt links between drug trafficking groups, government officials, and senior active duty members of the military. The rallying cry at a series of protests organized in Guerrero and in other parts of Mexico was Fue el Estado. It was the state. At the time, Lopez Obrador demanded justice and criticized the rampant impunity that has long protected the politically powerful in Mexico. The Ayotzinapa incident really helped to harness popular frustration with the status quo in Mexican politics and also helped catapult Lopez Obrador to a landslide victory in the 2018 election. As president, however, he has ignored long-standing calls from legal scholars, public policy experts, security analysts, and human rights experts who have for years advocated that Mexico stop relying so heavily on the military to patrol streets and ambush criminal gangs. Lopez Obrador once promised that if elected, he would order the army to return to the barracks. As president, however, he has embraced Mexico's armed forces to a degree that is unprecedented in modern Mexican history. As he made the transition from candidate to president, Lopez Obrador has gone from loudly advocating for a full investigation of the Ayotzinapa incident to actively defending the military's reputation and outright denying that the government played a role in the disappearances. Antes, el violador principal de derechos humanos era el Estado. Ahora, eso no sucede. En el caso de los jóvenes de Ayotzinapa y muchos otros casos, no se puede hablar de crímenes de Estado. 
In order to discuss the current trend of militarization in Mexico, today we're talking to Stephanie Brewer, a Mexico-focused security analyst at the Washington Office on Latin America and the author of a recent report on the increasing power of the military in Mexico. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you, I know that you recently published a report on the topic of militarization in Mexico, and I wanted to know, what are the main findings of the report, and why do you think it's important for us to be paying attention to this topic right now? Yeah, so last month we published the report, Militarized Transformation, and it looks at some of the key indicators of the growing powers and roles of Mexico's military over almost the last two decades, really, but especially focused on the current government of Andres Manuel López Obrador. It looks at some indicators of human rights violations, as well as a general backdrop of criminal violence and impunity in Mexico. So what are some of the main findings? First, uh, we do see continued military human rights abuses, despite what the government likes to claim. Certainly, we don't see the extreme level of human rights violations witnessed, for instance, during the Calderon government, but we do see higher than expected or higher than normal levels of lethality in terms of killings of civilians. We see cases of arbitrary execution, alteration of crime scenes, reports of physical violence in contexts of detention. So all of these issues do still occur and continue to be alarming. I want to mention one specific finding, though, because it exemplifies what's a larger message of the report. We asked for information from the Mexican government about how security forces are reporting the arrests they make because security forces in Mexico are required to report their arrests to a centralized registry. We found discrepancies of thousands of arrests in the case of the armed forces, in which the armed forces report that they're detaining thousands more people than the people who appear in this registry. And when we asked the armed forces about their reporting, the army simply told us, yes, we don't report our arrests in this registry. Now, why is this of particular concern? Of course, from a human rights perspective, it's very concerning. But this is an example in which the armed forces are failing to comply with an obligation imposed by law, as well as by presidential instructions, as well as confirmed by Mexico's Supreme Court. So literally all three branches of government indicate the armed forces have the obligation to comply with reporting your arrests, and yet they aren't. And that's the larger message of this report and why it matters really right now to be paying attention to militarization in Mexico, not just from a perspective of concern over human rights violations, but because the military is growing in power and roles without effective civilian controls. And there are a series of examples in which it fails to comply with its legal obligations or with presidential instructions. That's something very worrying and something that going forward will be difficult to reverse. Okay, interesting. So uh, I definitely think your your report is, is fascinating and I definitely recommend that listeners check it out. And I think that Overall, right now, the the discourse and the debate about Lopez Obrador's policy choices when it comes to the military has 
become really challenging because of the highly polarized political atmosphere that Lopez Obrador has fostered in Mexico. So I really think it's important just to establish a, a basic framework of facts for understanding this debate around militarization in Mexico right now. And I wanted to ask you, if you had to pick three words, what three words would you pick to describe Lopez Obrador's relationship with the military? I would think of the words empowerment, deference, and denial. So empowerment, because Lopez Obrador, his, his administration, has ceded and assigned and given ever more civilian tasks to the military. This is certainly true in the public security sphere. Today, Mexico no longer has civilian police at the federal level, only military bodies, the army, the navy, and the newly, fairly newly created National Guard, which for all intents and purposes operates as a branch of the armed forces but also empowering expanding the military's roles even beyond the security sphere, including in mega development or infrastructure projects. Uh, the military controls ports and customs, continues to take a leading role, maybe an ever leading role in migration control and a range of other tasks, which of course means empowering the armed forces in budgetary terms as well as in political terms and, and practical terms. That's why I would say empowerment at the same time, deference on the part of, of Lopez Obrador, um, because he really is following the lead of the military on some of these issues. Uh, the military itself has long wanted legal reforms to justify its participation in civilian policing tasks. It had not obtained those reforms uh, in, a, in a sustainable way. It finally obtained a law in the prior administration, but it got overturned. But now in the Lopez Obrador administration, uh, the reforms that it envisioned or wanted have become a reality. And you see the armed forces designing some of their own proposals and those being accepted and carried forward by Lopez Obrador. And you see very specific examples as well, anecdotes, in which uh, Lopez Obrador clearly is following the, the lead of the military. One very notorious example, and maybe many of, of your listeners have heard of this, was in 2020 when Mexico's former defense minister, Salvador Cienfuegos, was arrested in the United States, uh, accused of essentially drug trafficking, collusion with drug trafficking organizations. And Lopez Obrador's very initial reaction to that uh, was to say, oh, well, this is an example of, you know, the, the decadence of, you know, prior regimes or some, you know, something along those lines. But then very quickly, he completely changed uh, his position to one of demanding that the United States return Cienfuegos, um, sort of defending him and ultimately accusing the United States of fabricating these charges. And, uh, you know, the, the explanation there would be presumably that the military itself or a group within the military spoke with him and said, you need to, you know, you need to get Cienfuegos back here. You need to stop this from happening. And of course, in very recent days, uh, Lopez Obrador actually gave an, an award to Cienfuegos. Um, so that's a very, very notorious uh, example. Deference also in the sense of continually praising, extolling the military and really propagandistic terms, defending them. And this leads into the last word, which I chose, which is denial. This goes from publicly denying 
military wrongdoing, despite all evidence. This occurs in the case of the military using Pegasus spyware uh, to spy on activists. Uh, it occurs in the case of the military hiding information about the IoT Napa disappearances. The president tends to state in almost categorical terms, the military does not violate human rights and anyone who says otherwise is part of a conservative conspiracy against him. Um, so those are the, the three not very encouraging words uh, that, that I would use to sum up the relationship right now. Okay, yeah, definitely. Um, empowerment, deference, and denial. And in particular, the last two, deference and, and denial, really stand out as being pretty negative in uh, the assessment of the, the impact of this relationship that Lopez Obrador is fostering. And I saw something interesting recently, which is that in the case of the uh, the investigation into the missing students from Ayotzinapa. Um, recently, the the parents have complained that there hasn't been, you know, signi significant or sufficient investigation into the role of the military or the potential role of the military in this incident. And the, the attitude that Lopez Obrador has adopted most recently is to kind of suggest that it is foreign intelligence agencies that are pushing this idea that the military was involved and he's praised the military for their openness and in sharing all the information they have about the case and he's kind of suggested that anyone who continues to insist that they might have played a role is unpatriotic or a traitor to the country um just kind of fits in with the broader rhetoric that he often uses um and it's interesting to me because I, I attended some of the early protests that happened after the Ayotzinapa incident, uh, both in the town of Iguala in Guerrero and in Mexico City. And at the time, it really seemed like a, a turning point in Mexican politics. And the message, Fue el Estado, it was the state, really served to help the movement gather steam and heap blame on, on public officials. And I think that that movement seemed to harness popular frustration of, about Mexico's security policies and really bolster Lopez Obrador as an alternative. So I think that many observers might find it surprising to to watch how closely Lopez Obrador has embraced the military during his time in office. And I'm wondering, overall, if you had to evaluate Lopez Obrador's public security policies, is there one word that you would choose to sum up your evaluation of his security strategy? To sum it up in one word, I would choose the word populist because the security strategy, which of course includes militarization as a very strong pillar, but includes a couple other elements as well that I can mention. But overall, and especially you know, recently toward the maybe second half of the administration, it's a strategy that prioritizes often projecting an image, projecting a message, but that message or that strategy may or may not and often doesn't align with 
reality or have a basis in evidence or lead to a logical expectation of consolidating security and, and the rule of law. Militarization is a big part of this. And Lopez Obrador is, of course, not the first president, even in recent history, to use the army to either uh, seek to legitimize or strengthen his, his position to project an image of taking big visible actions in the security sphere. The armed forces, of course, are a powerful patriotic symbol. It's a visible presence of, of the state. But the particular way in which Lopez Obrador talks about the military is to glorify them as being, uh, in Spanish, el pueblo uniformado, right? Especially the, the army, the people in uniform. And essentially seeking to project an identity that is the identity that his supporters, of course, and everyone would want to have as a good person and saying, you know, if you come from the people, then you are good and you're serving your country patriotically. And of course, that that can be very true, but it's unclear why that would apply only to people in the armed forces and not the many, many, many other members of that people who are who are not in the armed forces who might be either civilian public servants, not public servants, working in other areas, etc. So he glorifies uh, the military also as incorruptible, uh, which is something that it does not have a basis in, in, in evidence. And when you concentrate power in any one institution without checks and balances or control, that leads to abuse of power that's not a stable uh, or controllable situation. And at the same time, he portrays civilian institutions, especially several that are meant to serve as checks and balances on the executive branch as elites and you know dens of corruption. So the idea that the military in itself is, is good, incorruptible and, and efficient and honest and represents the Mexican people and that some of these civilian institutions, you know, they're the other and they're the elites. You know, this is a, this is a fairly um, populist uh, discourse. He also uh, demonstrates you know, the phenomenon of, of punitive populism um, so sort of demonizing uh, supposed criminals, ex demonizing judges who free detained people saying, look, the judges are letting all of these criminals go free and we need to clamp down. Lopez Obrador, of course, uh, expanded the list of crimes for which people are automatically imprisoned uh, if, if they're indicted, which is a violation of, of international human rights law as well. And the overall context is one of uh, Lopez Obrador seeking to, you know, erode or delegitimize uh, the power of certain of certain checks and balances, be it the judicial branch, very current topic in these days with the judicial branch workers striking, um, be it human rights organizations, human rights defenders, be it the critical media, and sort of projecting this image of he is constantly struggling and fighting against this massive elite conservative, you know, perhaps foreign interest as well, conspiracy. And this has really taken priority over the actual, uh, an actual fact-based evidence-based analysis or projection of what are the policies needed to advance security and the rule of law in Mexico. So that's why I would describe the overall strategy uh, as, as populist. Okay, so that's a really great word, populist. And I think it's very fitting because on the last episode of the podcast, I spoke to Will Grant, the author of a new book called Populista, and we compared and contrasted AMLO with 
some of the other leaders in Latin America who have employed authoritarian populist strategies. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really great word. And kind of more broadly, looking at the topic of Lopez Obrador's security strategy and whether or not it's succeeding, I, I just looked at the numbers today and I see that Lopez Obrador's presidency has now logged over 165,000 murders. And with over a year to go in his term, Lopez Obrador's presidency is already marked as the most violent sexenio in modern Mexican history. And I'm not sure that people around the world fully grasp the severity of the violence that Mexico is experiencing right now. And that includes many politicians and policymakers in the U.S., I think. And we often talk about the Felipe Calderon presidency. And during the Calderon presidency, I think that Mexico was really seen as being a country that was at war with drug cartels. But the total number of murders that have already occurred during Lopez Obrador's presidency is already nearly 20% higher than during the full Calderon presidency. And I'm not sure that that information has been fully absorbed into the media discourse about Mexico right now. And I wanted to ask if there's one policy reform that you would like to see implemented in Mexico to meaningfully improve security and successfully reduce violent crime, what would it be? Well, to answer that and, and jumping off some of what you were just saying, I mean, let's first quickly um, uh, take stock of the context uh, of violence in Mexico. So I think the image that the international community does know, or perhaps knew better uh, in, during the Calderon presidency was that Mexico, of course, was experiencing heightened levels of violence. During that presidency, the Calderon years, um, Felipe Calderon came into office and launched uh, or, or greatly deepened uh, Mexico's militarized war on crime. And so we can trace back the current sort of modern era of militarization of policing tasks really to Calderon. So at that time, violence and serious human rights violations really skyrocketed. They, they, since that time, they've more than tripled. Um, so there was an increasing trend very clearly during that presidency and then basically going up. And today, you know, Lopez Obrador inherited a country already with uh, historically high record levels of violence. So we should also be very clear that, you know, he, he didn't inherit a country in, in peace and with low levels of, of violence. He inherited those problems from before. And he very clearly identifies that. He very clearly, as a candidate, and uh, and even till now, he contrasts himself constantly with, with Calderon. And he says his model is not a war. And uh, his model is not to fight violence with violence, you know, as Calderon did. Now, what do the results of the Calderon strategy show us? They show us precisely why militarization and, of course, frontal combat uh, doesn't work. It is not the solution. I think that, um, you know, the power of organized crime, it comes in part from what we might consider stereotypical or well-known factors, such as the fact they have powerful firearms. Um, and so in a way, it's natural for people to think, oh, well, to fight back against that, we must need a militarized response. That must be the 
you know, the, the answer, that must be the key. Well, we have plenty of evidence from the Calderon presidency onward that that's not uh, the key. Why? Because the true power of organized crime doesn't come just from firearms. It comes from collusion and corruption on the part of authorities, different forms of either outright um, collaboration or at least tolerance from authorities. It comes from the climate of near total impunity for crimes committed against the population in Mexico. And you can't militarily deploy your way out of corruption and impunity. So that leads me up to, you know, what is the reform that that we need to see? Uh, we need to see a change in this model such that the emphasis is on strengthening rule of law through criminal investigations, through the criminal justice system. So using the tools meant to address crimes, to address these serious crimes, through, of course, civilian police as well, through the use of intelligence to build cases that can dismantle uh, patterns and networks of organized crime. So that's, we need to see a clear shift in that direction. And part of the problem of militarization, it isn't just what it directly causes. It isn't just, you know, shootouts or human rights violations. It's everything that is deprioritized when you are investing all your capital in the military. And so state and local level institutions in particular and civilian institutions and the criminal justice system, it hasn't had this same uh, priority and investment and support throughout these years as militarization has, has. And I also can't emphasize enough the need for uh, local and state institutions to be strengthened in terms of their capacity, their, their accountability, et cetera, because that's actually where the majority, you know, the majority of crimes can in Mexico, the majority of victims, they uh, legally uh, need to be attended by state and local institutions. So that is, that's the shift that we need to see in the model to really consolidate and create a sustainable uh, situation of rule of law and combat impunity. So I think that's really interesting that you mentioned kind of this need to develop institutional capacity and increase civilian policing power in Mexico. And on a recent episode of the podcast, security analyst Vanda Felbab-Brown from the Brookings Institution summed up Lopez Obrador's security strategy by calling his flagship National Guard patrols the most expensive mannequins in Mexico. And she also called for Mexico to do more to increase civilian policing capacity and improve the state's capacity to investigate and prosecute crimes. And I recently saw that Mexico sits in 115th place in the 2022 World Justice Project Rule of Law Index, and that's worse than Russia and Sierra Leone. And that's really pretty astounding when we think about the extent of the weakness of institutional capacity in Mexico. And on other episodes of the podcast, we've done some deep dives into organized crime dynamics in Veracruz and in Michoacan. And something that we saw and that we talked about was this near total failure of local level and state level police and prosecutors to investigate and disrupt organized crime. And I think that's not just a local issue in certain states, Mexico as a whole really struggles with that. We, we know that 
nine out of every ten murders in Mexico go unsolved. So that's a pretty pessimistic statistic to talk about. And I'm wondering when you look ahead, Mexico has a presidential election coming up in 2024. And I'm wondering what your outlook is for security policy in Mexico going forward. And are you hopeful at all that Mexico's next president will have some success in improving the overall security dynamic? Well, we we have to think that it can be done. We have to think that it is possible. Unfortunately, it was already an uphill battle, and it's going to be an increasingly uphill battle after the Lopez Obrador administration. Um, Lopez Obrador, to be clear, he didn't create uh, either the problems of violence, and he certainly didn't create the problems of a distorted civil-military relations dynamic in Mexico. Mexico's military historically has enjoyed a disproportionate degree of autonomy, and there's been essentially an unspoken pact between civilian and military authorities in which uh, the military has not gotten to involved in politics and the civilian government lets it have uh, a fair degree of autonomy and, uh, and lack of transparency. But Lopez Obrador significantly deepened institutionally, legally, as well as in public discourse, uh, this disproportionate role and power of the military as compared to civilian institutions. Um, and he's also done, as I mentioned, a bit of work to, to undermine, uh, seek to undermine, you know, the credibility or the actual power of some, of some civilian checks and balances. And he's not done necessarily. Uh, I think we can expect to see, and he's even announced that before he leaves the presidency, he wants to seek further reforms essentially a constitutional reform to formalize the identity of the National Guard as one of the armed forces. So we'll be on the lookout for that. But whoever comes into office next uh, will will inherit a very tricky situation. Um, Claudia Sheinbaum, who is uh, going to be the candidate of ruling party Morena, um, she thus far has shown no public inclination to change the basic tenets of López Obrador's model and her campaign will um, surely focus on promising continuity uh, and promising to be Lopez Obrador's successor um, and to achieve his his goals and to continue what he calls the fourth transformation of of the country and that certainly has has included deepening the power of the military and their role in security the opposition presidential candidate uh, Xochitl Galvez she hasn't necessarily presented very detailed plans yet on her, her security strategies. Um, she has uh, mentioned in interviews the idea of strengthening local and state police, uh, the, the importance of criminal justice. So she's hit on some of those positive ideas, but honestly, those are ideas that uh, essentially all the candidates will, will you know, say that they support. As, as candidates. She's also mentioned that she would draw some inspiration or ideas from precisely the Calderon government. Um, she has suggested maybe the problem with that, the sort of the war on crime strategy was that Calderon sought to do too much too fast or without having his full strategy ready. So we'll see, um, you know, how her proposals materialize. But what's, what's interesting and of course concerning about this last 
this last point is it really hints at what could be down the road the perfect storm for which Lopez Obrador's government has set up the country, and that is a vastly empowered, larger military structure with outsized influence within and beyond the security spheres, uh, but combined with a future president, a future federal uh, government that, unlike Lopez Obrador, really does want to return perhaps to a frontal combat strategy uh, or some other model that, that involves human rights violations. Um, so we could really see a, a repeat or a repeat in a different form of some of the extreme levels of violence we saw in recent years, but now with fewer controls and with a more empowered military. Um, so certainly whoever comes to office next has a large task before them, but very much the necessary route to strengthen security and rule of law in Mexico is to bet on criminal justice, to bet on civilian institutions and policing and state and local level and not continue this distorted and, and ultimately not effective uh, focus and overemphasis on militarization of these tasks. So something that I see is that there might be some optimism among some observers that Mexico's next president will take a more pragmatic or policy-focused approach towards security and other areas of government uh, and focus a little bit less on highly, highly partisan um, political rhetoric. But we'll have to kind of wait and see how that unfolds in 2024. Uh, but in any case, I'm definitely looking forward to analyzing some more concrete details on policy proposals from candidates next year. But for now, I just want to say this is super interesting to hear your perspective on this topic. And I want to say thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much. I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by Bara Funky Coffee. Bara Funky Coffee is available at the Bara Funky Cafe in Mexico City and is also available to be purchased online and shipped to the US and other countries. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast. If you like what you heard in the podcast today, check out my book, Searching for Modern Mexico which is available on Amazon. The next episode of the podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.